The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Franklin, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Our scripture passage today is from Isaiah 9-6 and also John 16, 25-33. It's Isaiah 9-6 and John 16, 25-33. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now John 16, 25 through 33. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Oh, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Russ Ramsey. I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres. It's good to be with you all this morning as we are crowded into this room this morning for this one service now, and then we'll have our lessons and carols later this afternoon. Um, that passage that, that TK just read from John 16, you may be thinking, you may not be, but you may be thinking... That's not a Christmas passage. It's Christmas Eve. I thought we were going to have shepherds and wise men. We're going to get to a Christmas passage, but I wanted to use that passage this morning to set this up um, because this is the last part of our uh, series in Isaiah uh, where we're talking about this this picture that is described of, of the Messiah being our wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Now, it's during the holidays, especially during holidays like Christmas and, and Thanksgiving, uh, a lot of times we, we have ways that we go about it, uh, where from one year to the next it's pretty similar, same kind of groups of people around tables, same rhythms to a day. And, uh, and one, I'm a person who loves rhythm and routine. I love having things work a certain way. I, 
I take comfort in having predictability. Um, I have a way that I, I, I'm just kind of funny like that. I have kind of my ways that I go about doing things. And one of the things that I do, if you've been a part of this church for any amount of time at all, one of the scriptures that I will drop into most of my sermons, um, I would say, well, at least half of the sermons in a year, at some point, I will quote a verse that was in the passage that TK just read. And that verse is, Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. And I circle back to that over and over and over again. And one of the reasons that I circle back to that over and over and over again is because in my time as a pastor, in the time that I've spent leading congregations and caring for people and getting to know people's stories, um, one of the things that just goes with the territory of being in the church is that in this world we have trouble. That's a lot of the function of the body of Christ is to walk alongside one another in seasons of turmoil and trouble. And so I love to quote this passage from Jesus, in this world you will have trouble, to remember that what it means to be a Christian is not this is the way to circumvent trouble. It's not how we avoid it. Jesus said, I'm telling you, in the, this is going to be a hard world to live in. This world has difficulty. And then he follows it up by saying, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And so I quote this verse so much, not as a warning. It's not really as a warning or as a way of asking us to lower our expectations. Let's not do that. Let's not go through life lowering our expectations so we don't get disappointed. But instead, I quote this verse because the one who says it to us, the one who says, in this world you will have trouble, is also the one who is doing something about that. And what he's doing about it is perfect and it's final. And so when we lack peace, focusing on Jesus as our Prince of Peace, when we lack peace in our lives, in our hearts, in our days, in our weeks, we have a Lord who is our Prince of Peace. And he's able to usher in peace for our struggling hearts. And it's always been the plan that he would do this. And so on this Christmas Eve morning, what I want to do is I want us to take a quick walk over to Luke's Nativity. So we are going to get a Christmas passage in here. We're going to go over to Luke's Nativity, and we're going to see how Christ would be our Prince of Peace. These first couple of chapters in Luke, Luke 1 and 2, or the nativity story. It's the longest version of the nativity story that we have in scripture. And between Luke and Matthew, those are really the only two places where we get a nativity. The story of the account of Jesus' birth. And one of the things that you see over and over and over again in Luke's account is how central worship is. Worship shows up over and over and over. It's almost as though we were made for worship. And then encounters with God draw from us a response of worship. You see it over and over again. You see it in Elizabeth. Elizabeth worshipped God the first time that she saw Mary pregnant. Zechariah exalted God when he saw his son John the Baptist born. Mary worships God when Elizabeth speaks a blessing over her. Even the angels, when they appear to the shepherds, they praise God and they worship outside of Bethlehem. It's everywhere. And then we get to the end of Luke's nativity. And we see it again. Worship. 
worship. Everywhere you turn, Jesus' birth is drawing from men and angels alike this response of adoration and worship. And so at the end of the nativity, we meet this person, this character, who's one of my favorite characters in the Gospels. He shows up for a little bit and then he's gone. And his name is Simeon. And he is a man who has been waiting his entire life for this moment. And this moment is when he finally sees the Christ. And he also responds in worship. And he reminds us that if we're going to see Christmas rightly, then we have to see Christmas through the lens of Easter. Christmas and Easter are inextricably joined together. One does not make sense without the other. And so I want to read this passage from Luke 2, 22-35, if you want to read along, otherwise you can just listen. But this is Luke 2, 22-35, the end of his nativity story. When the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him, this is Joseph and Mary, brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and he blessed God. And he said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul too, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Here Joseph and Mary are journeying to the temple, and they're there for two reasons, and both of the reasons are ancient. And the reasons are for Mary's ceremonial purification and for the redemption of their firstborn son. That's why they're going. To redeem something is to obtain its release by way of a payment. And so they were obliged to do this with their son before God. Why were they obliged to do this? Because God in his word in Exodus 13 said to his people, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb, both of man and of beast is mine. And so the consecration of the firstborn was something that Jewish people did in those days. And it was more than just a ritual of asking God to give the child a long and happy life. What they were doing is it was a ceremony that reached back far in history to when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt and the Lord told Moses 
Tell the Israelites to put blood on the doorposts of their homes so that when the angel of death passes through in this final plague, he will pass by those houses. The image of what's going on there is powerful. Because what's happening? So you've heard about this, right? Put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the angel of death will pass by your home. And you hear that and you think, okay, but what's that about? What's the blood mean? What the blood means is this, because it's a clear and haunting image. It means that the angel of death is going to be passing through the land and he will see the fresh blood glistening on the doorpost and he will count it as a sign that the people there had already surrendered to God what the angel had come to collect, the firstborn. And so God was trading the blood of a lamb for the blood of their sons. He was trading a life for a life. And so from then on, when any firstborn son was born to a descendant of those families, the parents brought that boy to the temple to present him to God because that boy belonged to God. And the parents presented him in order to buy him back. And so the thing that we should notice here is here you have young parents who have what you would consider to be an unconventional birth of a son. And what are they doing? Are they being spiritual renegades and saying, all the traditions of the generations that come before us, they don't mean anything, we're doing it our own way? No. What they're doing is they're actually observing ancient tradition. They're tethered to where they come from because we all come from somewhere. And the law stated that a lamb was to be offered. This was the law. A lamb is to be offered as a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove is to be offered as a sin offering. And then there's this caveat. And the caveat is this. It's to be a lamb and a pigeon or a turtle dove unless, unless the family is poor. And if the family is poor and can't afford a lamb then what they can do instead is offer two birds, two pigeons or two turtle doves. One is a burnt offering and the other is a sin offering. And so Joseph and Mary come to the temple poor. They're poor people. They can't afford the lamb that the law preferred. And yet still they're embracing God's call to redeem their son. And so they come out of obedience to the law even though their position is not certainly where Joseph would have hoped it would have been. But that's how they come to be in the temple that day. And in the temple, there's this man, probably a cleric of some kind named Simeon, who was something of a fixture there. People knew who he was. And he was old. And he was known for being somebody who believed that he would not die. He believed that he would not die before his eyes had seen the Lord's Christ. And he would tell people that, that I will see the Lord's Messiah before he brings me home. And so he was known to everyone there as this minister who was waiting to behold the Messiah, who would be the consolation of the people of Israel. And most folks around him would have been like most of us, where they would have thought, good luck with that old man. Maybe you'll see that. Maybe you won't. I don't know. It's kind of your thing, but we're doing our thing. And there he is, though, and he's hanging around, he's staying in the temple, and the Lord reveals to him that he is going to see the Messiah with his own eyes. 
And when Mary and Joseph come in, the Holy Spirit quickens his heart and awakens in him this excitement which must have brought his aged heart to the point of bursting. This child, this baby, he's the one. And though God had promised Simeon that he would see the Christ, here's a part of the beauty of God. Here's a part of the care of God in the lives of his people. Here's a part of the God who loves you. His character revealed. As Simeon's promise was that he would see the Messiah. But what he gets is God does him one better. And it's that Simeon gets to hold the Messiah. He gets to hold the Christ in his arms. Mary and Joseph were not expecting this guy. They weren't expecting Simeon. And his blessing over the child wasn't a standard blessing either. Most blessings that we speak are petitions. They're warm, right? They're warm petitions for happiness and success in life. And what Simeon did instead was it wasn't a petition at all. He wasn't asking God for anything. He was proclaiming something. And what he was proclaiming is he wasn't asking for what this child could be. He was declaring who this child was. Every word that he spoke spoke to the purpose of this child. There was something that this child had come to do, to console a nation, a nation that was in turmoil in their hearts. And so Mary and Joseph brought Jesus here to this temple to redeem him, but now standing before them is a man declaring that this child will in fact redeem them. And as his words began to register with Mary and Joseph, they marveled at what he said at this encounter. Because this moment was a meeting of hearts. It was something of an exhale. You had, you had Simeon there who finally got to behold the one that he'd been waiting for all these years to see. My eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people Israel. And then for Joseph, however he may have felt about being in a position or not being in a position to afford the best sacrifices for Mary's cleansing and for the redemption of his child, that kind of all just went away. And then you have Mary. Mary. At last, someone else seemed to know all about what the angel had told her about this boy's purpose. So the old man's confirmation of this must have come at a great relief to her. In other words, this was a happy moment. This was a happy moment. But then Simeon kept talking, and his smile, I would imagine, began to level off. The joy didn't leave, but he got serious. Because there was more to say, because there was more to this little life than met the eye. All Simeon had said so far was what Jesus would do, but now it was time to broach the subject of how, how he would do it. And he began to tell Mary a truth that she must have already had some sense of as well, that Jesus would turn the world on its ear and it would come at great cost. Her baby would facilitate, Simeon said, the ruin of many in Israel. 
the rise and the fall. He would be like that stump from Jesse's root. He would jut out and he would break the toes of any who tread lightly on the purpose for which he had come. Because he would reveal what's in hearts. He would reveal what's in the hearts of people. The light of the world would shine in every dark corner of every dark heart, exposing every dark secret. And this is a world that has grown fond of its darkness. There's darkness everywhere. And so it shouldn't come as a surprise that he would be opposed because he would expose And so Simeon tells her all these things. And she can't help but suspect that he's not done. That he's maybe pulling his punches a little bit so far. Because there's something else, there's something more pointed that he has to say to her. And she's right. There's something that he does say to her at the very end. And it must have been hard to hear. But it had to be said. And he was the one appointed to say it. And it was this. He looks directly into Mary's eyes. And he said, what awaits your son will be like a sword that will pierce through your soul. I can't imagine for the life of me what it must have been like for Mary to raise the Christ knowing from the angel that visits her at the Annunciation to Simeon talking to her here, to knowing that her son would be the Redeemer. And she understood how sacrifice worked, that it was a bloody business. For Simeon to say, a sword is going to pierce through your soul because of him. Scripture gives us this wonderful, mysterious and yet on its surface, very plain spoken detail about Mary is that these things would be said and it says she treasured these things in her heart. Which is a step or two beyond saying she remembered them and didn't forget them, right? It's like she put them someplace. She carried them. They were active. They were in play, these ideas. She, she treasured these things in her heart. And if, if, if Mary kept things spoken of Jesus in her heart, this had to have been one of them that a sword would pierce her soul, that this would be the price of being the mother of Jesus. She had to raise this baby knowing that he belonged to God. He was the Lord's firstborn. And that he had come for the purpose of saving us from our sin. And this was a bloody affair. It always was. And so, around 33 years later, she finds herself, Mary, at the foot of the cross on which her son hangs. And with her own two eyes, she would watch him die, despised and rejected, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And her heart would be pierced by the suffering and the rejection that he had taken and was taking then. Is this 
she wondered, what it takes to console a nation. What does it take to console a nation? Could she ever be consoled after something like this? Would this turn out to be the very thing, the only thing, that could console people who live in this world where we will have trouble? If her son was the salvation of Israel, then he was her savior too. And there was purpose behind everything that he did. Purpose. And it was a purpose that he was singularly devoted to. It was a purpose for which he was born. It was in his words and it was in his ways. And it was even in the events of the week leading up to the moment when he would overcome the world by laying down his life with all authority. That cross seemed to cast this shadow back in time that reached all the way back to that day when Mary and Joseph met that old man in the temple. And he said, my eyes have seen the consolation." of the people of God. When Jesus offered up his life, the life we celebrate at Christmas, the baby in the manger, when he offered up his body, that body, he wasn't just dying. He was doing something. And he was doing something for you. What was he doing? He was redeeming us from the power of sin and death. Christmas is inextricably joined to Easter. Easter is always joined to Christmas. You can't make sense of one without the other. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let me pray. Father, we thank you so much for the extravagance of the gift that you have given us that we celebrate this Christmas. That it's not just a sentimental time to remember the birth of the Christ child, but it's a time for us to remember why he was born. And so, Father, help us to keep that in front of us as we go into... uh, holiday feasting and gift giving and celebration. Help us to remember that what you have given us is not just a gift that, might, that we might have thought was nice, but is what we desperately need, a Savior. And so, Lord, we thank you that the Savior that we have is one who grants us peace, who reconciles us to you, who restores peace with you. Help us to see our need for that. Help us to see your provision of exactly what we need in the person of Jesus and rest our faith in him all of our days. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.